0: So, uh, we've been going pretty, pretty steadily and hard in the doctrine of Christ. If you remember the doctrine of Christ is, uh, is speaking of the person and work of Christ, who he is and uh, what he has done. Last Lord's day evening, we considered the impeccability of Christ, um, that I believe raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of you had many questions concerning Christ was he able to sin, not able to sin? But I pray that in light of what we spoke about last evening, uh, Lord's Day evening, which was Jesus Christ was not able to sin, that it helped you have a clear picture of who your Savior is and what he has done for you. Um, remember, saints, that the sermons that I preach or, or Pastor Antonio preaches, Uh, especially the one that this morning, as complex as uh, the Abrahamic covenant is and Christology is in some areas, it's all for us to bow our knee to Christ and to worship him uh, more clearly. And that's the one thing that the church in general lacks is they worship Christ, but not a clear Christ. They worship a Christ that is uh, a false Christ or, or things about his person that um, that are not biblical and orthodox and things about his work that are not biblical and orthodox. So all the things that we teach from this pulpit is to allow us to worship God more in spirit and in truth. So this evening, we want to consider uh, the temptation of Christ once again. And in light of what we spoke about uh, Christ not being able to sin, we want to carry that over a little bit, and we want to consider the temptation of Christ from an aerial view. And what I mean by that is we want to consider the temptation of Christ uh, from a, a biblical theological standpoint, from a redemptive historical standpoint. You see, when we think about the temptation of Christ, it's much more, or the story is much more than the impeccability of Christ or preaching or are, are, are the, are the God uh, revealing that Christ is impeccable, that he's incapable, unable to sin. But there is a redemptive historical significance to the temptation of Christ. That the temptation of Christ and what he goes through links him not only to Israel, but also to Adam. That the temptations that we see unfold not just pertain to, or we don't see Christ, uh, doing these things, uh, so he can get the devil off his back, so to speak. Uh, but the temptations of Christ carry deep, rich, uh, theological truths that, that the, the whole Bible, uh, speaks of. So Saints, what we want to do is we want to look at the temptation of Christ, and if you would, uh, would you stand with me and we will consider, uh, one text, but to get the context of, uh, the temptation of Christ, we will look at Luke chapter 3 as well. So if you stand and we will look at Luke chapter 3 first. Luke chapter 3, and mind you, when we say let's stand, that's, uh, I'm not saying you have to stand, but if you're able to stand, then you can stand. If you're not able to stand, that's fine. But Luke chapter 3, if you will, Luke chapter 3. Verses 21 through 2022 say this. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom with you I am well pleased. Now let's look at Genesis or um, Luke chapter four. Skip over to Luke chapter four, and we see Luke chapter four verses one through thirteen says this: And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were and they went and then they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by the bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me. least you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Saints, you may be seated. This evening, I have three points I want to consider. The first is the setting. The second is the temptation. The third is the application. Number one, the setting Number two, the temptation. And number three, the application. And once again, I want you to have this view in mind is the temptation of Christ and what Christ goes through through is he is reversing the temptations of both Israel and Adam. He he is beginning the process of reversing the curse. And we see this uh, beginning of the reversal of the curse uh, in the wilderness and and, in Luke chapter four. In Luke chapter 3, we have the record of one of the most important events during the life of Jesus Christ. It is here at the baptism of Christ. He is endowed with the Spirit and a voice from heaven declares that the Father is pleased with the Son. We just read that. We will give special attention to the giving of the Spirit in a later time. But I want you to notice the voice that comes down from heaven. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 3 says this. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It is the father who says that this is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. This is a clear verbal affirmation of Jesus' messianic sonship jesus is the eternal son and as the eternal son he is pleasing to the father this one who is son pleases the father and this affirmation by the father as luke records doesn't simply speak of the eternal sonship of jesus christ although it does But primarily, Luke wants us to focus in on something more about the title of son. There's something more about this title of son than just Jesus Christ is the eternal son who became flesh. And it's here and it's where in chapter three, when we read on. The genealogy of Christ comes into view. You see, Luke wants us to focus more into this title of son. And then right after we read the the baptism of Christ, we read of this genealogy. Look at the end of Luke chapter 3, if you would. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Notice that when Luke comes to the end of Jesus' genealogy, he says the son of Adam, the son of God. Here, Luke links both Adam and Christ with one use of a term. He links both Adam and Christ with one title, son of God. In other words, Luke places Jesus as the son of God, side by side with Adam as son of God in order to frame the identity of Jesus as the second and last Adam. And with this side-by-side comparison in mind, Luke records for us in chapter 4 the temptation of Christ. When we enter the temptation of Christ, we are to have in mind this side-by-side comparison of Adam and Christ the first Adam, and the last Adam. After the Spirit has been given without measure to empower the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Spirit immediately drives Christ into the wilderness, where he will be tempted by the devil for 40 days and for 40 nights. And it is here in chapter 4, where we have a series of temptations that reenact The temptation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. It's this temptations that we are going to focus in on are going to hearken us back to the temptations that Adam went through in the Garden. And there's going to be some similarities, but also some major differences. Consider with me point one, the setting. The setting. When God created Adam... He placed Adam in a garden, as we all know. This garden was a miniature model of what the rest of the world was intended to be. It was a it was the blueprint of what the ends of the earth, what the entire globe was to look like. Adam was to expand and push the borders of Eden to the ends of the earth. He was to teach his prodigy the law and the word of God. And his progeny were to teach their progeny the law and the word of God. He was to fill the whole earth with the knowledge and the glory of God. And if he passed his probationary period, if he passed that covenant of works, he would be rewarded with confirmed righteousness, with glorification, and eternal Sabbath rest. His earthly existence would have transformed into a heavenly existence. Meaning, Adam's mutable state would transform into an immutable state. And there is no better place to accomplish this work, the work that was given to Adam, than in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was physical perfection. It was a place where it was free from thorns and thistles. It was free of death and illness. The lions lie down with the lambs. In Eden, there was rivers. and There was trees that Adam was free to act or free to eat from, all except one tree. But as glorious and majestic as Eden was, it was also the place where Adam was tested by the serpent. It would be the place where Adam would be tempted by the devil. Now let's consider the setting of Christ's temptation. Unlike Adam, Christ wasn't tempted in a beautiful paradise, but rather Christ was tempted in a desert. The wilderness, and hear this, the wilderness is the antithesis Of the Garden of Eden. If Eden was paradise, then the wilderness was a wasteland. The wilderness was a visual example of how much Adam's sin affected creation. If you want to see the implications of Adam's sin, then consider the setting of Christ's temptation. If there ever was a place for the serpent to tempt Christ and in Satan's mind for the Messiah to fail, the wilderness was an ideal location. The contrast between the location of Adam's temptation and Christ's temptation couldn't be more far apart. It couldn't be more different, saints. In the addition to the difference of locations, we see a contrast between the parties that were involved in each temptation. Adam had a helpmate. Adam was accompanied by his wife Eve. Eve was to be Adam's helpmate. Eve was to obey God's law and to to submit herself to her husband Adam. And if temptation was to ever arise, Eve was to be the first one to help her husband overcome temptation. It was Eve's job to help Adam, to, to hold on to the word of God. But unlike Adam, Christ had no sinless human companion. He had no human confidant. Jesus has no human assistance. Although he was empowered by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, Jesus must face the devil alone. Third and lastly, we see the contrast in the resources available, meaning this. In the garden, Adam had every tree for food except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the garden, Adam had every food to satisfy all conceivable appetites. Running through Eden were life-sustaining waters. Adam in the garden had an abundance of food and resources to say no to the serpent. When the serpent tempted Eve and Adam, Adam quickly should have said, I don't need to eat from this tree. For I have a multitude of trees to eat from. God has blessed me with an abundance of food, so I don't need to eat from this tree. But in the temptation of Christ, there were no trees. In Christ's temptations, temptation, there was no place, there was no resource where Christ could find nourishment from. There were no life-sustaining waters for Christ to drink from. Unlike Adam and Eve, who with full stomachs were surrounded by a luscious garden, Jesus is to endure the trial in a barren wilderness having fasted for 40 days. The stage is now set. We see now the contrast between where Adam was tempted and where Christ is tempted. Christ is tempted in a wilderness, in a desert, in a place that's full of high mountains, low ground that's full of dirt, sun beaning upon him. Adam was tempted where God would cool him in the garden. Adam is tempted in a place where he had an abundance of food. He had a helpmate to help him overcome temptation, overcome the serpent. So with that in mind, saints, let's now consider the temptation of Christ. Saints, what was the last voice our Savior heard before he was tempted? What was the last voice that Christ heard before he was tempted? It was the voice of his father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Immediately after Christ's baptism, the spirit leads him into the wilderness. And what's the next voice Christ hears? Luke chapter four, verse three says this. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, Command this stone to become bread. After the affirmation from the father, the son's sonship is questioned by the serpent. After the father has just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the serpent says, if you are truly pleasing to the Father. If you truly are the Son of God, prove it. Christ has been fasting for 40 days now. And with hunger at its apex point, the serpent tempts Christ to eat. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. This is a direct and militant challenge to the Father's Word. The logic of the temptation is this, saints. If you are the beloved Son of God, why have you not eaten for 40 days and for 40 nights if He truly loves you? If you are the Son of God, why is He keeping food from you? Why have you not eaten? If you are the Son of God, and hear this, save yourself and eat. Save yourself and eat. The devil's plan was for Christ to misuse food for selfish pleasure. Similar to the temptation of Adam. Genesis 3 verses 4 through 5, the serpent tells Eve, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Satan's design was to undermine the son's trust in his father. Satan's design for Adam and Eve was for Adam and Eve to place mistrust in their father, in their God. He's challenging whether Christ truly loves and trusts his father. Do you truly love and trust your father, Messiah? And what does Jesus do? He responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live. By bread alone. Now, what's interesting about this quote is this Christ does not quote Deuteronomy 8.3 for no reason. He doesn't just scroll in his Rolodex of Bible verses and he randomly picks Deuteronomy 8.3. But as you heard before from this pulpit and from many others, that there's nothing random in the Bible. There's nothing random that the biblical authors and what everyone, what these men say in the Bible, but everything is intentional. There's a there is a purposeful reason why Christ um, echoes or or quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. So what is he doing? Christ Christ is referencing Israel when they were in the wilderness. Christ is referencing when Israel was in the wilderness, when Israel was in the desert. In the desert, Israel complained about the manna that God had given her, if you remember. They asked God and Moses if they had been brought out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. And if you remember, they began to question the goodness and sovereignty of God. And as a result of their lack of faith and trust in God, They sinned against God in the wilderness because they wanted more. It wasn't enough. The manna that God had blessed them with wasn't enough. The exodus out of the the hands of Pharaoh and his army wasn't enough. So Israel sinned against God when they were in the wilderness. Saints, the reason why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy A3 is because he is identifying himself not only as a second and last Adam, but as true and faithful Israel. That is why Christ quotes Deuteronomy A3, meaning that Christ, as true Israel, is that faithful son that Israel could never be. That Israel was called to be, but never obtained. And mind you, saints, Israel was obeying God and was called to obey God on a level far different than Jesus Christ was to obey. That's important to note. But in the wilderness, Israel failed to hold on to God's word. But Christ in the wilderness tells the serpent what Israel should have said. Man shall now live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the same thing Adam should have said. That's the same exact thing Adam and Eve should have said. And what Christ is doing here, he's showing that where Adam failed, where Israel failed, he succeeds. Christ is the perfect obedient son that Israel and Adam were not. Notice the second temptation, Luke four, verses five through seven. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. And it has been delivered to me for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan now takes Jesus to a high mountain. And the logic of this temptation is this, saints. If you worship me, all the kingdoms will be given to you. They've been given to me and I have the authority to give them to you. If you worship me. And the fundamental push, hear this, saints. The fundamental push of this temptation, of this second temptation is this. For the son to commit idolatry. That's the fundamental push. That's what's driving this temptation is for the son to commit idolatry, to worship and serve the creature and not the creator. And the appeal of the temptation is this. If the fundamental push is to commit idolatry, here's the appeal. Here's the lure of the temptation Here's what Satan uses to, to try to grab Christ. It's this. Glory without suffering and death and wrath on the cross. That, that's the appeal of this temptation. In other words, the way Christ was to receive glory, the way Christ was intended to receive glory, was through what? Through suffering. Suffering to glory. That's the pattern. That's the pattern of our lives, saints. But in this temptation, Satan reverses it. Satan is offering Christ glory without any suffering. All you gotta do is worship me. And I will give to you all the kingdoms. Saints, this is the same strategy that Satan used on Adam and Israel. In the case of Adam, The temptation was what likeness of God. You can be like God without obeying him. You don't have to obey God. Just eat from this fruit and you can be eat from this tree and you can be like him. That was the appeal. That's what lured Adam and Eve. In the case of Israel, the temptation was to leave the wilderness and to go back to Egypt You don't have to go through this suffering in the wilderness. Go back to Egypt. But what we see in both the temptation of Adam and Israel is this. They both disobey God by worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Both Adam and Israel commit the most blasphemous of sin. That is idolatry. In the case of Adam, he worships the creature. He worships. Satan, he worships himself rather than God. In the case of Israel, what do they do? They build a golden calf. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, what are they doing? They're worshiping this golden calf. They commit blasphemous idolatry. And Jesus' response to Satan was another quote from Deuteronomy. This time, Deuteronomy 6. Jesus answered him, it is written... You shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The quotation appears in the context of the giving of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5 say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, because there is a historical and redemptive significance to it. Here, fear, love, and obey was God's command to Israel. But Israel failed to offer such obedience. And here, when, when Christ quotes, when he hearkens back, when he echoes Deuteronomy 6, he's saying this. He's saying that I am the embodiment And I am the fulfillment of Shema. That's what Christ is doing here. Christ is saying, I am the embodiment and the fulfillment of Shema. I hear my Father's voice. I obey my Father's commands. I love my Father. The Shema was given to Israel. And Christ shows that he's true and faithful Israel. For Jesus, the way to glory, saints, was through obedience and suffering. One application for you. The way to glory is through obedience. And all that comes from that obedience. And here, Christ resists the glory of this world By doing what? How does Christ resist all of the kingdoms of this world? By obeying and putting trust in his father's word. That's how he overcomes all of these, all this worldly desires and temptations. And I'm saying that not that Christ had those desires or temptations or lusts. The third temptation, the last temptation of the wilderness takes place at the pinnacle of the temple. Luke 9 verse or Luke 4 verses 9 through 11 says this. And he took him to Jerusalem, Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up, least you strike your foot against the stone. Satan so far has been tempting by commands, has he not? If you do this, you get that. But here we see Satan uses scripture in a perverse way to tempt Jesus. He says, okay, Jesus, you want to go to scripture? Let's go to scripture. Again, the devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is Satan doing here? He's quoting Scripture, but not the whole Scripture. uh, Satan takes Christ to Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. However, he leaves out one verse. Psalm or in Psalm 91 verse 11 through 13 says this here. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But here's the verse that Satan leaves out. You will tread on the lion and the otter. And the young lion and serpent you will trample underfoot. He leaves verse 13 out for a reason. Because it's about himself. Satan leaves out the ending of, 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 or he leaves out part of the psalm. He leaves out verse 13 because this is a direct reference to the Messiah trampling the serpent down. Psalm 91 verse 11 through 13 is an allusion to Genesis 3.15. And the promise that the Messiah will trample the serpent with his feet. And what Satan is doing, he's saying... He's trying to have Christ misuse his feet. Rather than trampling the serpent down, he wants Christ to misuse his feet for selfish ambition. To do what? To display who he is. We read in Christ's response to Satan in verse 12 through 13 of Luke 4. What does Christ say to this? And Jesus answered him, It is said that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended, every, had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Christ's response is telling, is it not saints? He's fed up with Satan. He essentially, Christ is saying, enough is enough. You need to leave. You, you need to get out of here. And it's not that, and when I was reading this, it's not as if Christ says, enough is enough, you need to leave. And then David, and then, and then Satan says, you're right, that's enough. But, but Satan has given his best shot to try to tempt and, 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 and allow, tempt, tempt the son to disobey his father. He, he just threw three fiery arrows at temptation, at Christ. And mind you, what we learned last week, Not one temptation sticked eternally. They just bounced off Christ. The devil knows that he can't get to Christ. He can't get to Christ to disobey his father, so he departs from until an opportune time. He says, you know what? I threw my best shot. Now I'm going to, we will revisit this when the time has come. And saints, that opportune time is on the cross. If there ever was a time when the devil could tempt Christ to disobey his father, it would be at his absolute weakest point when he was hanging on a cross. Saints, if you would turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 35 through 39 Or rather, 35 through 43. And as we read this, saints, I want you to pay special attention to the voices. Special attention to the voices. Jesus is currently on the cross. Verse 35 on down says this. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, and one of the criminals who were hanging railed at him saying are you not the christ save yourself friends what do these voices remind you of what do these voices remind you of the devil said to him if you are the son of god command these stones to become bread to you i will give all this authority and their glory for it has been give, give, uh, delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Christ is on the cross. And when Christ is on the cross, saints, he's hearing the same temptations he heard from the devil. Just by different voices. The voices that Christ hears on the cross echo the one voice that he heard in the wilderness. And they're doing the exact same thing Satan did. They're tempting Christ to disobey his father. The same exact thing. But then another voice speaks. Another voice speaks in the midst of the other voices. And this voice will not echo the devil, but rather this voice will echo the father. Verse 40 to verse 41. But the other rebuked him saying, and this is the other thief, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we need, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And here's the voice that echoes the voice of the father. Here it is right here. But this man has done nothing wrong. What was the voice that Christ heard at his baptism? The father affirms that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here we see the thief echoing the voice of the father. This man has done nothing wrong. He's pleasing to the father and he rebukes the other thief. The thief recognizes that this is the sinless son of God hanging beside him. They are getting what they deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. We are rightly being punished, but this man is unjustly being punished. This man is sinless. This man is pleasing to the Father. And then he makes a public confession of faith. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief knows that, and this is, this is the most glorious thing, the thief knows that death is not going to bind this man. The, the thief knows that this is the son of God and death has no sting on him. So he says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. The kingdom of God is the antitype of what Edom was to be and what Canaan was. And what's Christ's response? Truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So saints, how does this sermon bring improvement upon our lives? What are some of the lessons that we can leave with? And a lot of all that, what we have said, well, saints, we don't walk away from this sermon and say the way to resist temptation from the devil is by God's word primarily. That's what we don't walk away with. We don't walk away and say, that sermon was about The way we resist temptation from the devil is by quoting scripture at him. For the Satan knows scripture better than you in every known language. But rather, saints, we are to see how temptation has been overcome for you. That's what we are to leave with. Not what we can do, but what Christ has done. We are to turn our heads from what we can do, saints. And we are to lift our eyes and fix our eyes to see what Christ has done. Jesus undergoes all of this, not merely saints, to provide for us principles and a manual to overcome temptation in our lives. But he goes through all of this as our representative as our federal head and saints that is the good news of the gospel is it not that jesus has stood where we have fallen he has resisted the lies of the devil where we have been deceived and so he has obtained for us salvation the story of Christ's temptation is not ultimately about what I need, what we need to do, but what Christ has done for us in our place and in our behalf. The point of this sermon is this, saints. Jesus Christ's obedience stands in the place of our disobedience. That's the point, that Jesus Christ's passive and active, perfect obedience stands in the place of of our disobedience. The obedience of Christ in the face of satanic temptation reveals to us the uniqueness of this one who is Son. God, our Adam, as a son, felled in Eden. Israel, as corporate Adam and son of God, felled in the wilderness. Christ, as last Adam, true Israel, and the Son of God, obeyed his Father until the very end. What we learn from this lesson, saints, is this. It's not Adam's obedience. It's not Israel's obedience, nor our obedience, that merits forgiveness from God. But it is Christ's obedience alone that merits us paradise and eternal life. Let's pray.